Welcome to the Faith and Feelings Podcast. My name is Taylor Joy, and I'm passionate about helping you untangle and honor your emotions, authentically practice your faith, and integrate both into your everyday life so that you can experience the goodness and delight that comes from living in relationship with yourself, God, and others. Thank you for joining me. Let's get started. Today, we are going to talk about worry and anxiety. The idea for this episode came from a podcast interview that I did last year around the time that my most recent book, Stop Saying I'm Fine, was released. During my conversation with the two podcast hosts who were therapists, we were unpacking some of the core features of anxiety when one of the hosts asked me a question I'd never considered. How do you think worry and anxiety are different? We all contributed some initial thoughts to their differences, but after the interview ended, the question stayed with me. How are worry and anxiety different? Even more than the question itself, I wondered why this topic wasn't addressed more, because the truth is, anxiety and worry are distinctly different. The more I've studied them individually, the more I've realized how often worry and anxiety are blurred together as the same thing, and this isn't helpful. In fact, confusion around their differences can leave many of us stuck and unable to name what we're feeling and why. Our ability to differentiate worry and anxiety is essential to be able to process them in a productive and healthy manner. So in today's episode, I want to specifically talk about how worry and anxiety are different and how they go together. And let me just say as we jump in, what we are going to cover in this episode might be a complete surprise to you. It was to me. But as I've absorbed this information, keeping it in the back of my mind as a resource to draw from in moments of anxiety or worry, I've been amazed at how these insights have helped me process what I'm feeling more quickly and with so much more clarity. In last week's episode, we talked about how anxiety is a stress signal from our bodies, alerting us of potential danger. So today, I want to begin by placing the experience of anxiety in context within the larger map of our nervous systems. And yes, your nervous system has a map that you can learn. Learning this map is a powerful tool to help you understand why you react the way that you do. So in order to explain some different aspects of the nervous system, I'm going to use the analogy of an elevator, an elevator that is inside of you. Essentially, your body comes equipped with an internal elevator, i.e. your nervous system, that was made to go up and down different floors or nervous system states. You ride this internal elevator shifting floors, depending on a host of different factors, including your relational environment, triggers, and real or perceived threats. This is the human experience. God designed your nervous system to continually survey what's happening around you in order to answer the following questions. Am I safe? And how safe am I? Whenever your brain detects the slightest hint of danger, it prompts you to do something or shift elevator floors 
to reestablish safety again. What's important to recognize is that this surveying and shifting happens subconsciously. You and I don't choose if or even when we ride our internal elevators, but we can become familiar with the particular order of floors that it takes us. I know this is a lot of information, so let me briefly summarize what we've covered so far before we move on. God designed your body with an internal elevator known as your nervous system that is specifically designed to survey your environment for danger. When your brain detects a potential threat, it prompts your internal elevator to take you to a different floor or nervous system state so that you can reestablish safety. But your internal elevator doesn't just take you to any random floor. There is a particular order of floors that it will automatically take you. Mapping these floors helps you understand why you react to things the way that you do. Briefly interrupting this episode to invite you to the Faith and Feelings Substack, a weekly Wednesday email and reader's favorite that allows us to continue the conversation we start here on the podcast. These emails include personalized resources, recommended links, and reflection questions designed to help you process each week's episode more deeply, both individually and in community. Click the link in this episode's show notes to become a paid subscriber for just $5 a month and begin investing in your own spiritual and emotional health today. So let's talk about some nervous system states or floors that your internal elevator will take you, which were identified by Dr. Stephen Porges in the 1990s. The first nervous system state is what Dr. Porges called the rest and digest state. Think about this first state as representing the ground floor on your internal elevator. Your body is able to relax. You may feel calm, open, safe, curious, and empathetic. On this floor, you can rest. The experiences of joy and mindfulness are easily accessible. You can operate with an interior sense of stability, as if internally you have two feet planted firmly on the ground. This is the nervous system state of social engagement, where we are connected to ourselves, others, and the world. Physiologically, your body's ability to digest food and resist sickness and infection improves. But what happens when your body detects danger? And I'm not talking about getting attacked by a bear or finding yourself suddenly in a life-threatening situation. Yes, your body would certainly be detecting danger and responding accordingly in either of these scenarios. But your nervous system is purposefully designed to detect much more subtle threats. For example, imagine you're talking with a friend and the tone of their voice or body language suddenly changes. Your nervous system detects the change instantly. You pick up on a threat of accusation or anger in their voice. You respond and they respond back. The conversation begins to become heated. 
You might try using words, but if that doesn't work, or if your body senses that using words is not going to help you to begin with, in a fraction of a second, and completely subconsciously, your body will shift to another nervous system state or floor on your internal elevator. And remember, this shift is intended to help you reestablish safety. As you leave the ground floor of your internal elevator, your body will take you to one of three higher level floors. Dr. Porges developed a specific name for each of these floors or nervous system states. You might have heard them before. Their names are fight, flight, or freeze. Now, each of these states look different on the outside, but all three share a common characteristic. Internally, your nervous system has kicked into high alert or something called hyperarousal, which essentially means a heightened state of activation or energy. What's so important to recognize as true, regardless of whether you shift into fight, flight, or freeze, is that in these states of dysregulation, we are no longer able to be curious or empathetic at the same time. Now, I'm going to say that again. When you shift into any of these three states, it is impossible for you to give compassion or stay curious. When our bodies detect a threat and mobilize to respond, we are no longer able to fully access the parts of our brains that can make sense of the world around us and can keep perspective. That sense of calm and groundedness that characterizes the ground floor of our internal elevators is replaced with a sense of alertness and hypervigilance. Why is this? Your body and brain are brilliantly focused on one thing, helping you survive. God designed your body to detect the slightest hint of a threat and immediately react. And once again, this happens in a fraction of a second and completely subconsciously. Let's hone in on the flight response as this state is most closely associated with panic, worry, and anxiety. When your nervous system shifts into flight, this means that you are actively trying to move away from whatever feels dangerous, threatening, or scary. Essentially, you are trying to create distance between you and the stressor. In this anxious state, your heart rate and adrenaline increases. You may experience uncomfortable physical sensations like clenched muscles and sweaty palms. And if the fight, flight, or freeze response doesn't reestablish your sense of safety, your body will eventually move into another nervous system state called shutdown. In this state, imagine that your internal elevator stops working as if it has come to an emergency stop. At this point, your body has determined that there is no way out of the danger. A shutdown response is often characterized by feelings of depression, overwhelm, hopelessness, shame, and numbness. 
The body's protective stance in this state is to conserve as much energy as possible. You'll often begin to disconnect from your body's emotions and physical sensations and often disconnect from the world around you. Naturally shifting between rest and digest, fight, flight, freeze, and shutdown is part of the human experience. It's not if we experience these responses, but when we stay in them, that leads to significant psychological and mental or emotional effects. So with all of this said, where does worry fit into this map of our nervous systems? Let's go back to this hypothetical conversation with your friend that I mentioned a couple minutes ago. Let's say this heated conversation triggered a flight response or anxiety in you. When your nervous system shifts into a hyper-aroused, dysregulated state, your body becomes flooded with energy. You end the conversation with not a lot of resolve, and as you leave, your heart is pulsing, you're sweating, and your stomach is clenched in a tight knot. What do you do? What do you do with all of this anxiety and with this activated energy pulsating through your body? This is where worry comes in as a coping mechanism to your anxiety. Essentially, the experience of anxiety can lead to two coping mechanisms, worry or avoidance. Here, we begin to see where worry and anxiety come together. They go hand in hand, but worry is not an emotion. As research professor Brene Brown says, Worry is the thinking part of anxiety. She describes worry as doubt about future events and as a chain of negative thoughts about bad things that might happen. So let's say you leave this interaction with your friend and begin turning your conversation over and over in your mind. You can't stop thinking about it. You keep replaying what your friend said and what you said back. Then you start thinking about your next interaction. You imagine the awkwardness and the tension. You start playing different scenarios in your mind and you can't stop thinking about it. This is worry. When you worry, your brain is striving to sort out a particular future event. There is a specific identifiable challenge which your brain is working to solve. The uneasiness that swells in you as you continue to worry might cause you to lean into the other anxiety coping mechanism, avoidance, which Brene Brown describes as distracting ourselves from the unpleasant sensation of anxiety. Let's say you were invited to a dinner party a couple hours after this unexpectedly tense conversation with your friend. You know that your friend was invited as well, so in an attempt to avoid feeling more anxiety, you may tell the host that you're sick and can no longer come, or you may decide to go, but you find yourself mindlessly scrolling through Instagram during the hours leading up to the party. This mindless scroll numbs and distracts you from the anxiety that you're feeling in your body. 
Hopefully, the experiences of worry and anxiety are starting to make more sense and how they go together and how they fit into the context of your nervous system. But before we wrap up this episode, I want to briefly touch on two common misconceptions about worry. First, most people believe that worry is uncontrollable, which means that we don't try to stop worrying. However, worry thoughts are actually manageable. Remember, worry is a coping mechanism to anxiety. Second, most people try to suppress their worry thoughts, which actually strengthens or reinforces worry. Rather than suppressing our worry, we need to dig into and address the underlying emotion driving our thinking. Emotions are wise language within us, always trying to give us information about our present needs, longings, and beliefs so that we can stay regulated and resilient. Worry causes us to move into our heads, so rather than combating worry thoughts with more thinking, the way through worry is to bring our minds down into our hearts, bringing our whole selves back into the present moment with God. Now, this conversation matters because if you're someone who is familiar with worry and anxiety, you may be tempted, as I have, to despise this about yourself. For years, I've tried to white-knuckle my way out of worry, loathing these thoughts when they come. But slowly, I'm learning to take up a different inward posture. Not of resistance towards my worry, but of actually naming my experience in the moment and refusing to shame it. A passage of scripture that I've personally been reflecting on recently is Psalm 131, 1-3. As I read these verses, listen to how the psalmist describes his own posture towards himself. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Listen to how the message paraphrases verse 2. I've kept my feet on the ground. Think about our internal elevator analogy. I've cultivated a quiet heart. What I love about these verses is that the imagery that the psalmist uses is one of self-care rather than self-condemnation. Here, David is describing moving from a place of dysregulation down his internal elevator and into a more regulated nervous system state. But this process doesn't begin with God caring for David. It begins with David offering care to himself. And as he does, he slowly regains the capacity to bring his full self into the present moment with God. In these verses, David so beautifully describes one part of him tending to another part of him. One part of him bringing comfort, kindness, and care to another part of him. 
moving down our internal elevator back into a more regulated nervous system state can never happen by self-blaming or shaming. We can't grit our way into calm just like we can't will ourselves out of worry. So in closing, I simply want to invite you to consider your own posture towards yourself in moments of worry or anxiety. How might God be inviting you to more gently and intentionally tend to your own heart? Thank you for joining me for today's episode. I'd love to hear from you. Connect with me on Instagram at TaylorJoy. If this conversation was helpful and you'd like more information about my other offerings to engage your story more deeply, check out my website, taylorjoymurray.co. 